Before we open the scripture um, together this morning, I wanted to say uh, a word of deep gratitude for somebody who has been uh, an integral part and leader of our church. Um, many of you know the name Tom Leary. Um, Tom has served for many years as an elder on our Council of Elders. He has chaired our board and has helped to guide our church through some challenging times and come out on the other side. Earlier, earlier this year, Tom um, felt God guiding him to step off the board the good news is, is he will continue to serve in the way that he loves to serve, which is calling people, caring for people, praying for people. So he will still be a vital part of our, of our church family here. And Tom, if you're watching or listening, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart and from a heart of a grateful congregation and council of elders, thank you. And we love you. Um, I love you, brother. Well, the scripture reading this morning is found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now, the text of the message is found in Philippians 2.6. Last week, we started a series, and the series title is called The Mind of Christ. Uh, we looked at verse 5 last week. We are looking at verse 6 this week. We're going to just take it one verse each week because it's packed, it's good, it's wonderful. Um, but this particular text of Genesis 3, 1 through 7 ties in, as I hope you will see. So Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, this is the account of the fall of mankind. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of God. Well, it's been an interesting week, to say the least. I was thinking about words that came to my mind um, about what happened this last week with, with the fires and so forth. And one of the words, of course, is surreal. Many of you listening to this or watching um, were evacuated, starting early in the morning and through the day. I, I think probably the majority, maybe the majority of our congregation at some point had to evacuate the fires. And some of you had to evacuate twice. That is, you went to someone else's house to evacuate and they got evacuated later, so it's like evacuating two times. Um, surreal. On top of that, it's all the traffic of everybody trying to get away. It was a scene from a movie. Um, I was stuck in the traffic and one person told me it took them to, uh, let's see, about a, uh, an hour to go half a mile. Like So this is like a scene from the movie. Everybody trying to get out of town and nobody going anywhere. That brings me to a second word that reminds me of this week, the word apocalyptic. It felt apocalyptic, like I could feel the apocalyptic hairs on the back of my neck go up seeing and experiencing all of this. Let's just think about this last year. So we are in the middle of a global virus, pandemic. Then there were protests, 
and riots that are tearing apart our country, and then a massive fire, which they are categorizing as the second largest in California history. The only difference is, in former fire seasons, we could always point to some human cause, like PG&E, our power company. This fire quite literally came from the heavens. Hundreds of lightning strikes in California. Again, the word apocalyptic comes to mind. Now, I don't know how much longer until the Lord returns. We don't know the time or the hour. But such incidents should certainly cause us to be watchful and vigilant because Jesus did say that these kinds of things would happen with greater frequency and intensity. Intensity. But what I do know is in these times that God has called us and equipped us to live in this time. It's no mistake that we're here. And we're here to shine like lights. We are supposed to be representations of Jesus Christ. We're not just supposed to bear his word. We're also to live his word. The light shines the brightest in the darkness. And with these are difficult times. And the question I want to pose to you and I pose to myself is the people around us who are watching us as Christians, what are they seeing in us? What are they smelling in us? What is the aroma we're giving off? What is the, is that they taste when they're watching us as we navigate these times? Are they seeing faith or are they seeing fear? Are, are they seeing Christ or are they seeing craziness? Because I believe we were meant to embody like a taste of what God is like as Christians. Like, think about it for a second, how we were created. We're told in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, that we were created in the image of God. That means that, that, means that we, and no other animal or creature, bears this mark of the image of God. We were meant in some way, shape, or form to give creation a, a taste, a reflection of who God is. That's what we bear his glory. We reflect his glory. Of course, that was lost and in the marring of sin and in the fall of mankind. But here's the thing is that Christ died and rose again and gave us his spirit to restore that image, right? We are, if you're a Christian, we are, you are being conformed to the image of Jesus, who's the perfect image of God, which means people should see and experience in our lives how we're responding to these times. They should be tasting what Jesus is like and tasting what God is like because God is restoring that image in us. Well, this morning we look at verse 6, and it's going to show us an aspect of who God is, an important, critical, hopeful aspect of who God is, and therefore who we should be. And I find it tremendously challenging and encouraging at the same time. So we looked at verse 5 last week where Paul exhorted us to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or a different translation puts it this way, have, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ. So we're have, supposed to have a mindset, an approach to life, which we defined last week. The principle is um, a humble disposition of love to care for the needs of others above our own. That, that's the principle. To have a humble disposition is to be a disposition of mind and heart of love um, to care for the needs of others above ourselves. Now in verse 6, he switches, and he's going to give us the most stellar, the most wonderful, the perfect example of what that mindset looks like in the person of Jesus. So he continues on in verse 6 to describe this mindset in the example, and it's a compelling example of this mindset that is in Jesus Christ. So he goes on after he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, he says, who 
naturally relates to Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's the verse. Now, this is some of the loftiest language in the Bible in terms of identifying who Jesus is and what he is like. And the the verse breaks nicely into two. The first part where it says, who, though he was in the form of God, that's one, and it declares to us or asserts his identity, who he is. And then the second part, when it goes on to say that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that has more to do with his character or what he's like. So those are kind of the two parts of this teaching, his identity, his character, who Jesus is and what he is like. So the first part, the identity of Jesus, who is he? Well, in this stellar example of someone who cares about the needs of others above his own, he reaches back to who Jesus was before he was a man. That is the pre-existent son of God. That he existed in the form of God before he took the form of a man, which is going to go on in the verses that follow to say he became a form of his servant, likeness of a man, and so forth. Um, But he begins with the pre-existent son of God. That is one who is in the form of God. This is one of the clearest expressions and assertions of Jesus' divinity found in the New Testament, like along with John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews chapter 1. When the text says that though he was in the form of God, form, that has to do with the reality of the thing in and of itself. That's what the original word means. In other words, it's not a copy, it's not a facsimile, it's not a look-alike, it's not a cheap replica. He was in the form of God, which means he was, in all reality, the real God. I was in New York with some friends, college friends, uh, this is a long time ago, and we were at a kind of a touristy site, and this guy with a long coat came up, and he opened up his coat. And my first thought was, oh, here we go. Going to have a show. But it wasn't a show of what you're thinking probably right now, that he, had, he actually did have clothes on underneath, but inside his coat were all these watches. He said, I have Rolex watches here for cheap. Now, I'm not a watch connoisseur, but I knew for a fact that you can't buy a Rolex watch for 20 bucks. So these are like cheap knockoffs. These are just little replicas. But I don't think I could tell the difference between a cheap one and an actual thing because I've never actually seen a Rolex watch. But one of the guys in our, in our group thought it'd be cool to have a Rolex watch. Rolex watch. So we bought one. And I just thought to myself, what are you going to tell people who say, oh, I love your Rolex watch? Are you going to say thank you? It's like, no, it's a forgery. It's a fake. It's just a cheap replica. Last time we were in Jerusalem, actually every time we've gone to Jerusalem, we went to this place called the Shrine of the Book. It's a, it's a museum that houses um, parchments and ancient texts of scripture, many of which were unearthed in the whole uh, Dead Sea Scrolls discovery. And in the center of the Shrine of the Book is a complete manuscript of Isaiah that they uncovered over there. The one that's on display now is a facsimile. That is, it's, 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 it's as close to a perfect picture of the actual one that they discovered, but it's not the real thing. It's a facsimile. It's a copy. Now, I remember back in the 90s when I went to the Shrine of Book, um, we got to see the real thing. They've since put it away to preserve it. And I remember thinking to myself, I am staring like I am th- five, six inches away from a text that was written 100 to 150 years before Jesus was born. 
And I, that stuff amazes me. Some people like shoes, some people like cars, but that amazes me. But what I saw last time was a facsimile. It wasn't the real thing. Now, what I want to say to you is, like when it says Jesus was in the form of God, that means he was actual 100% the real deal. He is God in all of the fullness. And by saying that, what Paul is saying, and he's starting the example of what it looks like to care for the needs of others in the highest place possible. Like this is God. There is nothing higher than God. There's nothing more preeminent, no more supreme than who God is. And all that that means, like Jesus, and we can't even begin to fathom or comprehend what divinity means. To have absolute macro and micro sovereignty. To have complete and utter divine freedom. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He has the free choice as God to do that. To have unending, eternal, overwhelming joy. To have complete holiness before which an angel, angels have to cover their eyes. To understand the overwhelming communal love that the Father had with the Son and the Son with the Father and the Spirit. All of that, Jesus, in the form of God, had. Like Paul's saying, there's no throne that is higher than his. There's no crown that is more glorious than his. And there's no majesty more inspiring than his. Which means Jesus, who is in the form of God, he is worthy of all of our worship, our adoration, our praise, our devotion, our loyalty, everything. He deserves all of that. All of that. And if anybody deserved to be served, it would be him. Many of us have met people over the years who were people of position or wealth, who felt like there were tasks that were beneath them. There's no position higher than God. And yet, what he's going to go on to say is that he came down. He took the form of a slave. He did the menial task that nobody else could do or would want to do, to die on a cross for us, for you, for me, warped, short-sighted, often misguided, lost people. Imagine for a moment the Queen of England Queen Elizabeth, getting down on her hands and knees in all of her royalty, scrubbing a latrine in a third world prison to serve inmates. Such a picture doesn't even scratch the surface of what Paul's saying here. Who, though he was in the form of God. The point is that there's no greater example than this is someone who deserves all of our attention and praise and service coming down and serving the needs of people, getting on his hands and knees in the latrine of our fallen world to care for prisoners. Not only is that a great example, that is a compelling example. That's, that makes me want to be like him, and that's half the point. That is the point, to be like him. This is an essential quality of God, and that's the second part. If the first part says, this is who Jesus is, he starts here, he is God, fully God, and all that that entails, all the freedoms and the fullness and the infiniteness and so forth. The second part has to do with what he is like. Backing up again to keep the flow of verse six, who, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Grasped. 
The word translated grasp means to take by force something that belongs to somebody else, to seize it. In other words, Jesus is not one who has to fight to be top dog. He's not trying to take what doesn't belong to him. Now, in our world, this doesn't click. But in the Roman world, like this would have clicked. Like in the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods, that's exactly what they did. Like the pagan theology taught that, well, you have Kronos over here with his titans at war with Zeus and his Olympians over here, and they're vying for power and control. That is, they are grasping to be top dog. They're grasping to be absolute divinity. Why? 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 That's the world in which this was written. Why would they do that? Why would the gods go to war? And some of these gods have been reportrayed in Marvel comics and so forth, movies. The reason is because they are deficient. They are not absolute. The God of the Bible is presented as absolute. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, he is the absolute being. And so when it says that Jesus was in the form of God, he didn't have to grasp after equality with God. Why? Because he's not deficient. He already experiences and is absolute transcendent fullness. You don't grasp at what you already have. He doesn't have to grab at it. Grasp, seize what's not his. Not only does this point to the fact that he is in and of himself fullness, but it means also the opposite. Here's the, here's the point. What is God like? What is Christ like? Who, who is this example for us? Well, he is not a selfish grasper, but he is a selfless giver. That's part of the nature of who he is. He's not like scratching at attention or to want to be in control. It's, no, he already is in control. And in fact, he's the opposite. He, he is a selfless giver of himself. Between he and us, I mean, think about creation. Like God never needed us. He didn't need a little friend or a little pet. We're not his pets to bring him joy. Although he takes joy in us, he's completely and utterly content in who he is. Not just content, but overflowing. Think of creation. It's just, it spills out of him. Why? Because he is overflowing. That's the nature of him. He is a self-giving God. He gave us creation. He gave us each other. He gave us sight, and he gave us smell and sound and taste, all of these wonderful things and beauty. He is a self-giving God. All of creation teaches us that he is a self-giving God. And when creation fell, he didn't stop being that self-giving person. No, I'm going to give of myself, and I'm going to give of myself in the form of a slave, and I'm going to die on a cross for my chosen people. That's part of the nature of who God is as a self-giver. Tim Keller puts it this way in his book, the Reason for God. He says, and he's talking about the Trinitarian relationships, but it makes the point. He says, so it is, the Bible tells us, each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. So within the heart of God himself, from eternity passes this self-giving spirit, and here it spills over towards us to meet our needs. And, and that's the point for us. 
is that God is a self-giving God. And so one of the qualities, if we are to be light and darkness and be the taste of Jesus or the taste of God, we're going to have this self-giving spirit. We're not going to have this selfish ambition. We're not going to have this self-seeking, grasping at things, which the rest of the world does. We know this. Seeking preeminence, seeking praise, whether it's through money, position, power, beauty, that's the world. It, it, it affects our politics. It affects our businesses. Businesses trying to stamp out other businesses to get ahead. Politicians, you know, smearing, recreating stories, drafting stories, spinning stories to, to win at any cost. It's nothing less than selfish ambition. It's the way the world works. It's what happened to Adam. When Adam was in the first two chapters, perfect, he was a perfect representation of God. And had he come to the conclusion that, God, you are enough. You're more than enough for me. Not only are you more than enough for me, but I trust your word. And if you give me a command not to eat of this fruit, then I'm going to trust that it's for my good. If he would have obeyed and said, God, you're enough, and I will trust you, and I will love you, he would have, in those moments, he would have reflected the glory of God, the self-givingness of God. I am going to trust you, and I'm going to give myself to this creation around me, to the animals, and to the cultivation of the soil. But he didn't. And when he believed the lie, and they reached out and grasped the forbidden fruit, in that moment of selfish ambition, they did the most ungodlike thing possible. They became selfish graspers which is the heart and the nature of sin itself. And Paul's saying, we, we're not supposed to live like that. We're supposed to live in the opposite, self-giving people. And when we do that, people are going to taste and know that we belong to Jesus and that the spirit of the living God is in us. Why? Because God is a self-giving God. He is a selfless giving God. So if we are to conform to the image of Jesus, that's how we're going to live. And that's so practical in these difficult times. So you're packing your bags. You've got the, gotten the um, evacuation order. You almost have your car packed, and you notice the little old couple next to you are trying to get their bags in their car, but they can barely get them in because they're elderly. In that moment, you have a choice to make. Do I just shove all my bags in my van and drive off, leaving them, or am I going to be the selfless giving person, stop and say, you know what? We might get caught in traffic, but we're stopping and we're going to care for the needs of this elderly couple. In that moment, I believe you reflect the glory of God's selfless, self-giving nature. Or when your neighbor next door, who isn't the nicest, has no power and his food begins to defrost in his freezer and his refrigerator food begins to go bad. Do you hand him an uh, extension cord and say, you know what? I have power. Take some. I'll shut off some of my lights. Or do you deny him something that he needs? Church, I just want to say this is a time for us to focus in and to be Jesus. Um, to be Jesus and specifically along these lines to be selfless giving people of ourselves in the community around us. It's a time for us to shine. And I pray during these times we will recognize this is our call. This is our responsibility. This is, uh, this is what God has given to us to do, this task of being Christians in this time.
Let me pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. If you weren't a selfless giving person, we would be lost forever. But we thank you, we praise you, we worship you because you are the self-giving God. Though you are holy and transcendent, you got down on your hands and knees and you went to a cross for us to bring us up to be with you. Help us in these days, Lord, to find the courage, the strength, the grace to be the aroma of Christ to those around us and to each other. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.